podcasting from the great state of Texas, home to cowboys, boots, and stars that are big and bright, comes a podcast host that sparkles wherever she goes. This is Gums and Gossip. She's the dental educator behind the mask and the hygienist with a lot of heart. Ready to share her advice, her stories, and her special guests from the other side of the dental chair. And now, here's your host, Hope Lloyd. Welcome, everybody, to Gums and Gossip Podcast. My name is Hope. I'm your gum goddess podcaster. And I have two beautiful guests with me that I have known. I have known one for a long time, but she is on with her daughter. They have a beautiful story about restoration and about drug abuse. And this mother-daughter team, they're just gorgeous. And so we want to talk about how, like with the teeth and restored, but there's also a lot of gossip because it's a lot of small town things that happen. And I want this to be an inspiration to others to share stories, as well as they have silver lining, sober living. So we'll just jump right in and tell me, this is Stephanie. And yeah, so Stephanie Kelly and I have Lizzie Butler. Hello. And they are here. And I want Stephanie, go ahead and go first and just tell me who you are and your role. (laughs) I'm Stephanie Kelly, and Hope and I have known each other for a long time. We met in a little town in the same subdivision. We became friends and we've stayed friends. And then, um, so my role with Silver Linings is I'm the co founder and board member. Okay. And then, Lizzie, y'all started this. Mm. Was it because of you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's from my own experience and also just when I moved back up here, um, we just kind of saw a lack of resources for a good sober living for women. So we decided to open one. Actually, Stephanie, we didn't, our kids weren't, you know, together. I mean, my kids are at a little bit different age range. But in a small town, you know, we went to the all the same school districts and all that. And what's interesting to me is how... There's a lot of drugs that are prevalent in in towns, and I never knew. I'm very naive when it comes to any of that stuff because I was never approached by anybody. But how does one, I mean, like in a small town, how does drugs, like does some is somebody known to be the drug dealer or what happens? Not necessarily. Um, it just happens to be that that one specific small town has a much larger town very close by that it's very prominent in, and so it just kind of trickled its way into that way. I mean, once I got a little older and I started getting in trouble, I kind of got somewhat known for that affiliation, um, but it wasn't like one specific. It was more kind of if you weren't real big into athletics and sports, then that's just kind of what you did instead. Did you do any kind of music or anything? Was that part of it? Or you just stayed out of everything? In choir, she was a cheerleader. Here's the thing, I was in cheerleader. I was a cheerleader because cheerleaders got drug tested a lot less than if you were in off season. Is that, <clears throat> that was what happened in That's, the small town? So yep. were most of the cheerleaders, they actually were doing drugs? No, it was time? just me. It was just you. <laughs> it was just me. I just knew that my option was either, and I also didn't want to do off season and have to like run during the outside in the summer, all that. So it was just like the lesser of the evils was to be a cheerleader. And it's funny when I tell people who know me these days that I was a cheerleader, they mm-hmm. for some reason find it very hilarious because I was like the one cheerleader out there that looked like I hated everything about what I was doing. Um, I've never been like the 
like overly peppy one, so that's why everybody these days finds it just absolutely hilarious. She's a little more reserved than <laughs> than most what uh, yeah. most ever. Yeah, but it was also to be accepted. Was it to be accepted in the in the small town too to to cheerlead, or was it just something kind of a cover? Or if you hated it that much, what would be the the reasoning? Oh, I mean, the amount of attention sure helps. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, it was kind of a combination of the two. It was kind of like stay like what's that like saying where it's like you hide in plain sight kind of thing mm -hmm. um so there's a little bit of that and a little bit because there is like some in a small town popularity when you know you're either a cheerleader or you play on the sports teams um and it's so there kind of was a few factors into why i made that decision did you end up were you big on dating you could say that um yeah. that's yeah. safe to say um i was in high school generally a lot of the Yes, but I was I was in for, I guess four high school terms in decently long lasting relationships, mm -hmm. even and I think I was with like the same guy from like at, at least for like a year or so at a time, okay. um, which I feel like I guess in high school days that's a long time. It's like dog years, you know. <laughs> I know. It's high school years. Well, did, did they know you were into drugs? Yeah. Yeah. Were yeah. they in drugs too? Yeah. They were. You can't yeah. do drugs and not date somebody who also does them. Well, it's interesting because I know the small town, and there was a town that fed into everything. Did you know? Like, that's where when, most. most when, that's where most of my boyfriends lived. Yeah. Uh, in the other town. Yeah. Yeah, and so that's where things kind of funneled through, and that's how you met people, or how I mean, like everybody. Explain how that works. I have no idea. So, <laughs> in my experience, it was more like yours growing up. You know, where yeah. I didn't. Nobody ever asked to sell me drugs. No. So, yeah. What kind of drugs were they? So the things that I mainly started with would be Ween, Xanax, Hydrocodone, and back when Laura tabs were still around. Mm -hmm. um, those were kind of the main. It started off with weed. Um, and weed is marijuana for the listeners who don't know. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> marijuana, cannabis. Yes. Um, well, and kind of how I, I mean, unfortunately, the way I got started into it is kind of like the stereotypical way. Like I hung out with people who were a lot older than me. And that's kind of where it started. Like, I never really had to go, like, looking for, to, like, ask people to sell me drugs or people to just offer them to me. My experience kind of always just been I've ended up around people that did them. So then the option and availability for them just was there. There was nobody who, like, came approaching me trying to sell them to me. I didn't have to go look hard for them. It was just accessible. Did you know, Stephanie, did you know any of this was happening? I mean, was it? Something you suspect, you know, was suspect about, right? You know, and and so when teenage girls are not known for, you know, being particularly stable and level-headed and stuff, so it, it was to me it was hard to discern how much of this was just normal teenage moodiness and things like that and a drug problem. You know, so it was right. it was hard for me. I, I wasn't ever sure, so I suspected at times, but didn't ever really seem that far out of what normal teenage girl behavior was. How do people afford it? That's the other thing is, I know with the money and everything, is it from working? Because I know there were there were little places to work there, but not really anything. I mean, were people stealing? Was it something? How do people afford it? Well, so my answer for that question changes based off how old in my life we're talking. Um, but yeah. at that specific time... Maybe when you first started. When I first started, um, it was either friends already had it or it was like 
small town jobs because I mean like when you're in high school your parents are still for the most part paying for everything um because you're still a minor and you you know so at that age like it was you know and everything was a lot cheaper back then than it is now um so some of it was that job but also that's kind of how I started getting into middle manning drugs at the ages of like 15 and 16 is to just kind of help it wasn't like I was doing it enough to make any money off of it it was just the that bigger city I referred to I would just go there and get it and then bring it back for people and just upcharge enough to where I just wasn't you know mm-hmm. having to pay for it is basically how I how you did it mm-hmm. so what age you were what 13 14 when did you first start when did you started doing weed marijuana you know at what age probably the summer before my freshman year right around my freshman year something like that yeah I think. You think? I think. <laughs> if, what, if you remember, like, what, yeah. I, you know, and it's interesting because I don't know, and I'll ask you, if, did you ever do any kind of drugs? I mean, was it something, yeah, so it no. wasn't anything, yeah, for no, Stephanie. That's why, yeah. I, to me, I was so, like you, naive yeah. and clueless about everything that was going on because, you know, you could have your suspicions, but you really didn't know for sure. You right. didn't have any personal experiences to compare it to. And your grades were good. I mean, you kept up with the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the whole facade was you were doing great, but you're behind the scenes, you know, just having so much fun, right? Yeah. And I even got, like, awards in high school. And I, you know, was, like, at one point working two jobs. And I went to school. Like, I, my grades were good. Like, there wasn't there wasn't any of those, like, big normal. I didn't start getting arrested till later. But there wasn't any, like, big flashing signs of consequences yet so what i also found what i what, interesting when i had moved to that small town the big deal was alcohol alcohol was a, it was a huge deal no one had anything else to do except to go drink <laughs> you know i mean it was just one of those things that and so i could see how you know it might maybe start with something you know alcohol and weed and and all the other things that kind of contribute to it because you're sitting there trying to you're outside your parents say go outside and go do things and you have this neighborhood where it could happen where you just the whole neighborhood could just you know be like hey you know let's all get together and hang you know and do that one in that specific small town i don't know about all of them but i know in in a lot of them in that one for sure is that there are some families in those towns who don't care if their kid and their kids friends drink like that's not a concern of theirs as long as they're not driving as long as they're not you know it's kind of like an under their roof thing um and in towns like that like there really isn't a whole lot to do um and so what ends up happening is those families out there that own a lot of land if you are partying on private property the cops cannot come through so it was like the cops like knew what we were doing and knew that we were having like field parties and all that kind of stuff but when it's private property they can't do anything and y'all knew that Mm -hmm. yeah and i think you know it's safe to say too drug sex there's probably lots of sex going on too in in the you know behind the scenes as well with with all the kids right Mm -hmm. yeah so it was all part of it so that's a whole different experience I'm sure with the whole use what was your as far as your struggles what can you go back and figure out was it just something you were curious about or were you struggling with like some kind of mental something going on so before the substances ever came into play suicide attempts and self-harm had already came into the picture I think the first time I tried to commit suicide I was in eighth grade somewhere around there so it was like I had I think I just hadn't figured out yet for a lack of better way to saying it I hadn't figured out how to deal yet with life on life's terms 
I didn't really know how to cope with things well. I was still carrying a lot of stuff with me from as when I was a kid, stuff like that. So it was just I never really felt like okay. Um, and then I got introduced to something that helped me. You know, I'm not real sure if it made me feel okay or just made me no longer feel anything. The, like get rid of all the like the pain management seemed like it was it was worth it, right? Mm-hmm. When did you start having teeth issues? Did you notice anything? Was there like a point of time when you were like, okay, this is doing something to my mouth? Or was that not a concern? I mean, (laughs) there's like the downside of like when you start like abusing substances or just all around not taking care of yourself at a young age and like moving out early and thinking that like you already know all there is to know at 17 years old uh, is like those types of things don't get thought about. I remember like the first time I ever really like thought about it I think I was probably somewhere around like 19 ish uh, and that's because like I had some like issue I don't even remember what it was but just issues in my four top teeth and at either 19 or 20 years old I had to have four root canals at once in the top just from like not combination of like not taking care of them like I should but also just not taking care of my overall health like I should so that's I've been having up until a few months ago I've been having pretty regular uh either gum or teeth restoration fixing whatever um since from 19 until 30. Yeah Mm -hmm. so you're 30 now Mm -hmm. okay and I guess looking back, did you ever have where you saw anybody OD on something? Did anyone ever, like, where you actually could see somebody and think, oh, my goodness, that could be me? So, yes, but there comes a time when, like, either you think you're just doomed to live life like that for the rest of your life or you think there is no way out or you also get to a point to where you just don't really care anymore so I saw things happen I've seen a lot of things happen to people in in different forms and fashions but it just never I don't think it like ever really sunk in that that could be me or I just didn't care I'm not it didn't really matter yeah what about so you went to prison for it I've been I've been to jail 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 a handful of times I never made it all the way to TDC but yeah what was your longest take in the intake of jail? Three days. Yeah. I think. What? My intake? Intake. Or my stint or like in jail. like when you stay. Right. Yeah, stay oh, maybe. that would have been yeah. about two or three weeks. <laughs> two, three weeks. So you yeah. had like a three-day intake, and then you've yeah. also had where you had to sit there for three days? Mm-hmm. Wow. And then inside jail, you know, you actually, for two weeks? Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. You probably learned a lot. Well... Or did they put you in a different, is there something they put you in a different area? No? So I don't know. what I mainly learned, because um, I would get brief thoughts, because like obviously being in jail, you're for the most part removed. Um, also from like the same people, this like all the same stuff. So anytime I was arrested, it, it would be times that I had like brief thoughts of like, maybe doing things how I've been doing them isn't how I want to do them anymore. Um, And this last time was the time that I was in there the longest, and my dad basically, like, grounded me to Dallas County because at that point the only way he was going to get me out that time was if I went to treatment. And at that point I was like, I had been there long enough to, like, look around and be like, I don't want to be one of those women who knows how to just, like, sit and do time because that's basically what I was around. Where you were headed, you were headed Mm -hmm. that way. And and that was her first time in Dallas County. She had been in some other county jails that I think weren't quite as eye-opening, would you say? 
Well, I've been in Collin County, Denton County, but I think some of it is like, I think that was the first time I had the real sense that like I was stuck and that my enabler was no longer going to enable me to get out again. Did you see drugs in the jail? Like, or did it sober you up where each time, like the two, three weeks that you were in there, were you pretty much sober that whole time? And then that's when the eye opener hit? Yeah, I mean, I didn't see anything in there. What I did see is like either people cheeking and snorting their prescription medications. I even saw people snort coffee. It, there was like some different like, things. Like really trying to make some stuff work, but I never saw any like actual substances come through. It was that that last time was more one of those that I because I if it hadn't been for me getting arrested that time, I don't think I would have left the life that I was living willingly and then ended up there long enough for like the substances to clear physically and mentally for me to be like this isn't what I wanted when I was a little girl. So how long have you been sober? Uh, almost six years. Good job. Y'all opened up this facility, and it's to help others. And I really want to highlight what you guys have done. It's a nonprofit where you took a stand and said, hey, both of you guys, and it's mostly, you know, just because of your experiences and then being a mom of, you know, someone who had gone through all that part of it, you kind of have a unique approach to what you're offering. And Silver Linings is a explain what it is and how you help others and what your mission is. So um, just for kind of people who don't know what sober living is. So it's it's a it's a structure. It's a structured and supportive environment for people who are working on basically becoming functioning members of society while also simultaneously trying to establish like a recovery foundation in their life. So like what we do is we have like normal adult responsibility requirements so like having a job and that kind of stuff and then we also have where they have to you know we're strongly modeled around a 12-step program so they have to attend meetings work with a sponsor we have two house meetings every week they have morning groups we have curfews they have to put in pass requests for overnight so we have a live-in house manager drug and alcohol tested multiple times a week and like something that we do that's a little bit differently is than a lot of the other ones so as far as i know we're the only one in dfw that is like family owned basically so if we ever have women who their families are having a hard time like say if the woman themselves like you know relapses or something happens and she's not able to stay sober um then with those families i'm able to put my mom in contact with them because i think just like how people who have never experienced addiction can never fully understand it. I think the same goes for the family members of those. So she's kind of able to be supportive on the family side, like I am able to be supportive for the exact one, the exact person themselves. Um, right. So we're just kind of all around pretty involved with everything that goes on with the women through our house. Yeah, because whenever she was um, going through, you know, her time with drug use, I didn't, I didn't know who to turn to. I mean, to me, it was um, it was embarrassing. I didn't want to tell people, and and I didn't know who to ask. I didn't know who to trust. I didn't I didn't know what to do, and um, so it was it was difficult for me because I really didn't to, just was rather lost. And so, right. fortunately, when she was getting out of treatment, um, they recommend that you go then spend you know some time in the sober living environment, which helps you continue on the path that treatment has set you on. Because, you know, let's face it, 30 days is really usually not long enough to get mm -mm. somebody where they need to be. So this is the next step, which, you know, keeps them very accountable for their actions and uh, just helps them stay on the path that they've set them on. But anyway, so when she was going to sober living after getting out of treatment, I was like, a what? A what? And it's like, oh, it's I a do? sober living yeah. house. And I'm like, what? what is that? And so 
I knew nothing about sober living. And um, so she went there and she really, that's what she credits her being able to stay clean and sober with is, is what the sober living helped her continue to do that treatment had set her on that, that path for. So, um, mm-hmm. and then she later managed a sober living house for a year and uh, then she moved back up to the Dallas area and she works in the treatment industry and uh, kept looking around saying, I think we need some more good women's sober living houses that have a lot of accountability because they're not all structured the same. Ours has, is very high accountability, meaning there's lots of expectations and requirements and things for you to, you know, to become a functioning. With, with the substance abuse, what would you say, Lizzie, was the biggest, were there opioids? What was the, the worst, I guess the worst of the worst? Was it opioids? Was it meth? Was it, what do you think would be like the, the biggest thing that you did? That would be a pretty close tie between meth and heroin. Yeah, because they both meth did a lot of psychological damage, and as far as like my perception of the world, and not sleeping for three weeks at a time will do a lot of like not good stuff to how your brain works. Um, but then, as far as like being the most deadly, I guess it would be heroin. Do you, as far as the suicide, how many how many attempts you said that you had thoughts of suicide and you pretty much had given up? Was it something that do you think like that you could have gone to your mom and just said, hey, or is it something you just felt totally out of it and you were like, I can't talk to anybody about it. It's just me. Like, how are you feeling when with that kind of thing? It was just something you just couldn't control. Well, some of it when I was young, the attempts like when I was younger and the thoughts about it when I was younger some of that is like not I I think it's that I didn't fully understand that like that wasn't normal because it's not something that's like talked about um super often for me to like I think when you're at that age and you're still like trying to figure what growing up means and stuff like that like what's normal what's not normal you know as far as like when I got a little bit older some of that was because I mean I think last suicide attempt I was probably 23 or something like that and I ended up putting myself into a medically induced coma for about five or six days and at that point it was kind of just because the people in my life at that time you either died in it or you went to prison there wasn't like you didn't get out of it there wasn't there wasn't any of like the big public stuff about there being another you know way out and there like there just wasn't ever any like solution stuff in my life and at that point due to the substance use I had already cut my family off pretty well or at least like super far arms distance um so it was just kind of like at that point I felt like I was too far gone for redemption what brought y'all back together when you have all these episodes and you have all these things that happen was it something that you realized or was it something stephanie that you were like i need my daughter back what am i gonna do lizzie would probably be the better one to, to answer to answer what got she, y'all back she had kind of i felt distanced herself mm-hmm. from all of us so it wasn't that we didn't you know want to see her right. it was she was busy doing her own uh, stuff and didn't I think didn't like what perhaps we might have to say or or something but um so it was really when she I there was a long period where I didn't hear from her at all you didn't even I, know if she was alive I, correct yeah correct, which yeah. is as a mom myself mm-hmm. 
Um, I know how teenage daughters, I have my own, and I know they go through different struggles. And sometimes it is hard to come to family because you don't have the tools, like you said, to understand what's going on. We were all teenage girls, you Mm -hmm. know, and so you do have your hormones going and you have different things and you have expectations of yourself. I think, honestly, after like 2020, I know the rates of just people trying to cope and just trying to deal with things really were struggles. So when y'all opened up the facility and everything, obviously it's a good timing and stuff too because, you know, with all that. But when you, going back, you know, just to regress, you know, but like you reached out to your mom after all that time and you finally realized it or what? Um, No, so... When I was in high school, I mean, we did not get along whatsoever. We just didn't. My dad used to always say that we're exactly like where it hurts and we're completely different where it hurts. Um, And so we did not, because like during that time, I was feeling all types of things that I didn't know how to identify what it was, what like I didn't for a long time. I didn't know how to put names on emotions correctly. There was a bunch, I graduated high school a year early and moved out at 17 and I left and I then like we didn't talk for, I don't even know how long after that. I got pregnant with my son and I think like my grandma told her and then we kind of like got back in touch for a little bit throughout that. And then uh, when my son was about four or five years old, I decided to just disappear from everyone and everything shut my phone off nobody knew where I was and I was gone for a long period of time both her and my dad everybody like I just and and a lot of that more had to do with because I got into a point in my substance use that I didn't want anyone or anything to be able to dictate how often I used how high I got any of that stuff I got it's just I just couldn't I couldn't keep up with trying to balance the two facades anymore so I just left um and then I don't think we talked again until when I called her when I was in treatment right so it was my my dad was more my always kind of like constant like if 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 anybody knew who I was it was going to be him but even him at most of the time for a while yeah the only times so about a year and a half the only times he would know where I was is if I was in jail and called him I was in a place in a bad situation I couldn't get out of and I called him or he would watch the toll tags on my car to know what area I had been in but there would usually be a good handful of months at a time where neither one of them had heard anything from me in a while from you yeah And, and I just wanted to add to about whenever the first time I heard from her because so she had been missing, you know, and like we kept thinking next phone call we're going to get is just the police saying we found her dead of an overdose and she'd been there for a week, but none of the other, you know, drug addicts would would want to get themselves in trouble and right. even bothered to call. They leave her or whatever. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, and so um, so anyway, so when she ended up in, in her dad got her out of Dallas County and then he took her to a treatment facility. And so she could have phone calls. So she called her dad and talked to him. And then, you know, I think, I don't think you have to earn them or what. So after it's a, a certain time there, you yeah, got it's, it's one a, ten minute. It's a privilege. So um, he said, she's going to call you next. It'll be later this week. I don't know what day, blah, blah, blah. I don't know what time, blah, blah. So I wasn't sure. And so I'd seen this um, number ringing on my phone. And I thought, well, you know, do I or don't I? And when I answered it, this voice said, Mom. And I was like, Yes, and see, I'll still cry when I think about it Aww. because um, I said it was it was like a voice from the grave, somebody that you thought 
was dead and gone and t- never to return was back. She talked, it was my daughter, it was her voice, the thing she talked mm-hmm. about, it was her. And, and that person had been gone for a very, very long time. And so I can still remember standing in my kitchen on the phone with this big goofy grin on my face, just so happy because she was back. And, and I knew that she was back and that was her and that she wasn't gone after all. But, you know, anyway, so it was a it was a beautiful thing. And I always remember that. Yeah, it is a blessing, you know, that you're here and you're alive to be able to to talk to others and to share your stories, which I think is so commemorable of you and to be opening up a, a home. In my experience, I'm going to give you a patient story. Okay. I have a couple of patient stories. So, obviously, I feel like you meet people for reasons. And I know even just meeting, you know, with Stephanie, I mean, we were, we were it's like we, we've always been really good friends. And then you come back and it's the same kind of thing, you know. You just, everyone has their lives and you just live your lives. And I remember hearing some of the stories, you know, that y'all are sharing. It's like coming back to some of the things that I remember hearing things. And this is no, there was no judgment, there was no anything, it's more the embarrassment, you know, that even as a mom myself, you know, you're like, okay, what, how am I, you don't know how to process things either, right? But like when you, when you have a facility, a patient of mine was telling me that he was working, and I'm not going to say what um, industry, but he was in an industry that was a very predominant industry, and he was in heavy drugs, and he was in his he was still doing it he was uh in his 50s almost 60s and he was supposedly he's getting ready to retire and he got busted by a somebody and they sent him off to california which was happy place it was one of these like oh okay i'm shame on me slap my hand i'm going to california to be with the celebrities in their rehab right and the stories that I heard from him were like, I, I couldn't even believe, but there's drugs in those facilities as well. It's not something that's going to be a sober, you know, experience. And then they get the coin and everyone's like, oh, yes, absolutely. You're, you're sober and, and you've got everything. They're like, oh, yeah, you're sober. And he would come back into the dental office and he would be like, I'm, you know, 60 days now. And I'm like, are you really? And he goes, no, I'm getting ready to go back to California. I loved it there, right? So it was like enticing to him. It was almost like a reward for getting Mm. caught. Mm. Did you ever feel like there were rewards for like behaviors and stuff? No. So (laughs) there, I've been working in the treatment industry for a little over five years now. And there's places out there that exist that are like that. The good ones aren't. They don't operate that way. Um, That's why when we did our overdose awareness event last year, one of the things that I said when I spoke is I was like, if you or someone you know ever needs help, please don't get on Google. Because there's facilities out there that are these big corporate-owned companies that are dropping all of this money into their SEO and their online marketing and everything else that just, you know, like when you Google and the first things that pop up, like the paid ads, it's like those facilities. And, like, the unfortunate thing is, is, like, there is such a thing as patient brokering out there. There is such a thing as, like, just wanting to bill your insurance. Like, unfortunately, it does happen. Um, that's why we've tried to do some stuff in the public as far as like resources and like, Hey, even if we're not what you're looking for, like help me direct you in that way. Cause it's a, it's a tricky system to navigate. 
the treatment industry when it's brand new to you and you don't know where to start. I talk to families all the time that they're like, we don't, we don't, we don't know where to go with all of this. So no, I, I did not end up in a facility that was like that. I did not end up in any type of sober living like that. Unfortunately, I hear about a lot like the type you're talking about in California and Florida. Mm -hmm. Um, There's like Netflix documentaries about it and stuff like that. Um, They're not, they're not really here in Texas like that. There's some that are more lax than others, but uh, I definitely didn't have that kind of experience. No. And 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 facilities like you're talking about, Hope, it benefits them for them to not be sober because then they come back and I'm sure they're not cheap. No, so, yeah. yeah, and I think it was more the corporate route of things, and so they were making tons of money off mm-hmm. of these people, and, and like I said, things were still being brought in, and it wasn't, yeah, I mean, another story that I have, I actually have saved somebody's life. Uh, they were in my dental chair. They didn't tell me they took meth, and obviously they were coming in for a, uh, they had a couple of injections, and luckily, I mean, their eyes went back to, I had to monitor and, and oxygen and do stuff. But, yeah, they they ended up confessing, you know, that they were on, I had no idea. Um, so it was, it's a critical thing if anybody does have any kind of dental work to definitely disclose if there's any drugs, you know, that are going to be in your system. Because that was a really scary point for me her oxygen everything would just dropped and it was just it was an aha moment where I thought oh my gosh someone's not gonna make it and nothing like that has ever happened and and she did make it so everything was great but it was a scary point for me to to see and because I had Mm -hmm. no idea like what I mean we were told you're taught how to take care and do CPR and you're taught how to you know monitor and do medical emergencies and things like that so it w- it worked out great and i did monitor her but yeah she she definitely was like oops i took i did math wow mm. yeah. yeah so um as far as also in the dental world they use a lot of pain management for like opioids and that became a really hot topic with the dental, you know, maintaining. Used to be the main reason why I was willing to go to the dentist. Yeah, I think it's really an interesting thing because, and they've, they've nipped it a little bit more. I mean, dentists now have to take CEUs and do different things and prescriptions. It's it's not like it used to be. But what it used to be is people, yeah, would prescribe these and it wouldn't, it's not like for a three-day course. They would be like, here, have some extras. You might need it for pain management. And you'd call in and go, oh, you know that tooth that you did a root canal on well mm-hmm. it's kind of hurting again you know and I just can't sleep and they'd be like oh here you go have some more is that kind of what happened oh yeah which I haven't had that experience with dentist like since probably mm-hmm. I think it was like a couple of years before I got sober I started being like real disappointed as to why they weren't handing them out like candy anymore um but like when I first started getting dental work that's like And I think I even, when my wisdom teeth were cut out, like anything that was like what I was motivated by was knowing, because it's like when you have a substance abuse problem, like you're going to use them either way, but it always just makes it so much better and easier when you have some with your name on the prescription bottle and your insurance is covering for a majority of, of it. So... You know, no, let's that. let's talk teeth talk real quick. We'll start ending things. Let's talk teeth talk. So you've had several things done. Your whole mouth has been restored since all this. 
Does it, when you looked at your mouth before, prior, I know there's probably some pains and different things that happen, you know, from all the use, but when you looked at yourself in the mirror and you look at yourself now um, and what you've been through and everything, you have a great smile. I mean, your teeth, you've been through a lot, but your teeth right now, I mean, you would never know that you did had any kind of drug issue at all, right? It's because they're all fake. <laughs> yeah, this is, I've had... I've had a number of root canals, um, crowns. I had to got, get a gum graft early, like middle of last year. I've had a flipper for a while. So for a while I was able to pop my teeth in and out, um, which I was like, I love, I, it's like not super fun, but it's funny that like I've been able to pop some of my teeth out since I was 25 years old um, from like severe bone loss. Like I've had like, I've had veneers. I have, now I have a bridge instead of a flipper. Like, I mean, it's been like, I'm like, I don't think there's, a tooth left that hasn't been that hasn't been done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So all the main ones you can see, they're not. And it's pretty expensive, I would imagine. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so why is it that that like meth and certain drugs affect your teeth so remarkably? With any drug, so I always, in a little short version of everything, I always think of it as your mouth is like the inside with your body and everything. And the medical and dental, they go hand in hand. So what happens is, in a short version, is like what's under the hood of a car. You know, whatever you're putting in and you're doing, let's say you put Coca-Cola on the battery or something like that, right? Um, I'm just being pretty generic when I go through all this but it's what you're putting in what's under the hood of the car and stuff and so it it definitely starts to there's also food habits there's all different reasons like sugars um, acids it's just everything attacking from the inside out yeah yeah and also like you're on when you're taking most substances Mm -hmm. you're also going to be like not eating correctly if eating anything Mm -hmm. you're probably not well hydrated you're not Mm -hmm. like it's it's like your because isn't it like your body if it yeah. it's it lacking stuff it'll start pulling it out of your teeth and your yeah. mouth and stuff. So I mean it's it's just a big target and the teeth you know are the hardest substance and so to have all that happen I mean you can even think about what's going on in the inside as well. So back to I guess we'll kind of wrap this up. If you or any of your loved ones struggle with any kind of suicidal thoughts or any kind of addiction. Do y'all have, um, go ahead and let everybody know where to find you guys and how um, how you have resources to help and things like that. Okay, yeah. No, I've got a long list of resources for just about any type of struggle a person may have, whether it's mental health, suicide, medication management, substance abuse, detox, inpatient, outpatient, whatever it is. So you can go to our website, which is silverliningsrecovery.org is 214-556-8164. We're on Facebook, yeah. we're on Instagram, we're on LinkedIn. Can I jump in is yeah. and, and say something about Narcan real quick? Do you know what Narcan is? What is Narcan? See, I didn't know I what know. Narcan was either until we were opening the Sober Living House. Okay, and yeah, so, definitely. <clears throat> Narcan, because we, we talk about the opioids and opioid mm-hmm. overdose and, and, and fentanyl and how um, prevalent that is now. Narcan, let me make sure I say this right, reverses an overdose, right, Lizzie? Okay. Everyone <laughs> you should know what have, it's my, I strongly feel everyone should have 
Narcan with them because it's a nose spray, super easy to administer. And if it, they're not overdosing on an opioid, it doesn't do anything to them. So it doesn't do any harm. Oh. You know, because I was always like, well, what if it's not? Then is it going to, you know, it right. doesn't do anything. It works on the receptors in the brain and, and, and reverses. I always say it stops. It reverses the opioid overdose. Yeah. Yeah. So there's um, Narcan's relatively easily accessible. There's also all types of like online Narcan training stuff like that, pen like an EpiPen. Yeah. So it yeah. used to be like that. Now it's just something that you just spray in someone's nose. Doesn't hurt them if it's if it doesn't have to anything to do with an opioid or opiate or anything like that. But yeah. It, so it basically like the receptors in the brain that opiates or opioids affect it like reverses any impact they're having. So a lot of the times if you Narcan, it's like what all the EMTs, police officers, everyone uses if they ever arrive somewhere um, that they think someone may possibly be experiencing an opiate overdose. Almost immediate. And, and, and it's no spray, so if they're unconscious, you know, you can still administer it to them with no, you know, real medical anything. training. And um, no. But that was what got me is, look how prevalent the fentanyl overdoses and all that is. And most of us have never even heard of Narcan. I how, had how no is idea. That? How is that? Yeah. We all should have it with us because you never know. You never know when you're going to need it. So um, I can't. There's organizations out there. You can Google them, and they will mm -hmm. tell you. You know, like um, more Narcan, please. Dot org. I think is one. It's something like that. Anyway, yeah. where you can get you can get it for free. And pharmacies have them. Mm -hmm. um, there's organizations like last year at the event we did, we handed out a bunch of them. Yeah, and it's because it's also good to know that like sometimes you have to use more that you wait a couple mm -hmm. minutes, and if they haven't woken up, you use another one because depending on the so. yeah, that sometimes mm -hmm. more than so that's why it's always good for people even if they have them to get familiar that it's like sometimes it may require more than one, and when they do come to like be prepared for them to be really angry more than likely because uh, you just killed their high. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's an immediate thing, and then they'll just like you get still have mad to get it. You still then... have to get them to the hospital and stuff because mm -hmm. it only lasts, I think, thirty to forty minutes, and then the overdose can kick back in. But it's so it's basically to help save their lives in the meantime of getting them into a. And it doesn't matter whether whatever it is, it's just it's it has help. to be an opioid. Well, it has right. to be an opioid, opioid oh, or okay. opiate. Yeah, and if it's yeah. not, it won't hurt them. Yeah. So it's like might as well give it a whirl just in case. Yeah. Well, it's good information. Yeah. I mean, nice to share and everything. So we have one last story. I'm going to share one last story. We, we were talking earlier about retainers and everything. And so I had an instance, and we all have been moms and had our kids throw away retainers and everything. But we'll, we'll end with Stephanie's story oh. on, on the <laughs> retainers. <laughs> yeah, so speaking of her Lizzie's teeth, so when she was in junior high, she had braces and um and so she'd lost, I think, one retainer already. I can't remember. And then she she came home from middle school, and she said, I said, where's your retainer? She goes, oh, I don't know. And she said, I guess I threw it away. How would you throw away a retainer? Right? Well, it was wrapped up in my napkin, and then it was mold and I threw it away. I said, we're going up to the middle school right now. So we got in the car, went up to the middle school, went to the office. I'm like, excuse me, she needs to go through your trash and find her retainer. And they're like, oh, we've already carried it out. Because it's after school. I said, janitor's already put it in the dumpster out back. So I said, no problem. So we drive around to the back. I said, there's the dumpster, Lizzie. Go, jump in, and you're going to go through all that trash, and you're going to find your retainer. And, hey, I never said I was going to get Mother of the Year Award, right? No. So anyway, and so she's walking up, and here she is. You know, she's like, I don't know, sixth or seventh grade. And here comes the boys' football team walking in from practice. And so they're walking up, all these you know cute football player boys, and here's Lizzie looking like, oh. 
crazy. They go the through the dumpster. Let me just, let me just make a note and say that this wasn't just a dumpster. It was like your big like school. There's a few of them all next to each other. <laughs> right. Like huge. Right. right. The big metal. Anyway, and she went up and she slid the door on the side to it fully prepared to go in and it was empty the trash had come that day and had taken it so she did not have to dumpster dive for her retainer but i will say the thought of that possibly having to happen again i don't think i lost another one after that <laughs> no it happens all the time people put things in napkins people put their partials in napkins i know my own mother she's lost things too you know and i said how do you not see or the dog eats it or something will mm -hmm. happen right mm -hmm. so Take care. There we go. There's a public service announcement. <laughs> Take care of your retainers. Yep. Keep your retainer in the plastic <laughs> container at all times and when it's not in your mouth. Well, exactly. Yeah. I'll tell you, maybe that story helped me in as an adult because I never once lost my flipper. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah. There's once. things that lessons learned. <laughs> Well, thank you guys both thank for you. coming on here, and I really appreciate both of y'all sharing your stories. And I know if anyone has any questions, they can find you on Instagram, Facebook. You gave the phone number. Don't let this be a big secret for people because I feel like people feel shame enough, and there's no reason to feel shame. It's really what's going on inside that person's head. And a lot of times as a parent, you can't help you want to help and you want to be able to give and do things but it's really what's going on in somebody you know and it has nothing to do with being a bad parent or being anything like that it's just life happens and situations happen so if anything just let this be an inspiration to others and to share your story I really appreciate it thank you thank you so much thank you for having us Thanks for listening to Gums and Gossip and your host, Hope Lloyd. If you liked what you heard, help us spread the word by leaving a review wherever you get your podcast. And tell a friend. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And we'll see you again next time.